Okay, I'm glad you're here. We're going to be talking about a lot of things. We're in the, this is Rosh Chodesh Kislev, um, the first day of the month of Kislev. That's the name of the Jewish month, and this month contains Hanukkah. So we're already experiencing the light of Hanukkah. And um, the Chedusha Arim says that the light of Hanukkah and the light of Purim, the, these two holidays are keeping us alive in exile. And since this is the month of Hanukkah, I want to go into uh, some Torahs about Hanukkah and what the nature of that light is and what we can do with it. And, and uh, it's very, very deep. And I'm going to be drawing from uh, the teachings of uh, Rabbi Moshe Wolfson Shlita. He's one of the greatest rabbis in the world. And, um, and so uh, I'll be really, the, this whole talk really is, is coming from him. Uh, or from his words. He, he begins with an amazing gematria. He's basically, as far as I know, the greatest gematria maker in the world. And he mentions that the gematria of Chodesh Kislev, which means in Hebrew, that's Hebrew for the month of Kislev, is the same as Yeh Hashem Echad Ushmo Echad. That then Hashem will be one and His name will be one. So, let me explain for a moment what that means, because the Gemara asks a question, isn't Hashem one already? What do you mean, in the future Hashem will be one and His name will be one? So, yes, God is one now, always, that doesn't change, but, but His name is not one yet. The entire world does not yet recognize the oneness of God. And... Um, you know, if you know the Rashi on Shema uh, Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, you know, as much as that's like the kind of the condensed declaration of our faith, you know, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. At the same time, you have to understand that's a Pasuk, that's a verse in the Torah, and there's a Rashi on that verse, which in itself is like kind of amazing that there's a Rashi explaining what Shema Yisrael means. So, so, what Shema Yisrael means is, here Israel, the Lord our God, God is our God. Right? Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, God is our God. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. But in the future, right now He's our God, but in the future, He will be recognized by the entire world as the one God. So in other words, the, the Shema is actually, as Rashi understands it, a timeline charting people's recognition of the oneness of God. Right now he's Hashem Elokeinu, right now he's our God. In the future, Hashem Echad. The entire world will recognize his oneness. So what does it mean that God's, God is one and his name will be one? So that's one level of it. The world will recognize the oneness of God. But, but let's go a little bit further. My son was uh, asking me a question. He's 10 years old. He was asking me, why don't we pronounce the name of God? This, this the four-letter name of God, the Yud and Hey and Vav and Hey. This name of God, why don't we pronounce it? So this is what I told him. I said, you know, if I were to show you a, a box of tissues, and I'd say, these are tissues, you'd say, right, these are, this is tissue. These are tissues. There's a one-to-one correlation with it. 
If I were to point to a table and say, this is a table, you'd understand. This is a table. Again, there's a one-to-one correspondence between the thing itself and, and the Word. But if I point to the infinity of God, and I give it a name, and I pronounce its name, there is no correlation because you are not accurately comprehending what the infinity of God is. Since you will have a diminished or defective understanding of what the infinity of God is, by calling it a name and then thinking that you understand what it is, you're actually diminishing God. So what's the solution when we want to summon this concept? Well, we have the concept, but we don't pronounce it because we don't, we don't fool ourselves into thinking that we're grasping the entirety of the concept. So this is why we don't pronounce the ultimate name of God. In the future, though, when our hearts are circumcised, remember, there's a blockage on our heart. The world is evolving. You know, when, when the world talks about evolution, they're missing the greater point of evolution. The greater point of evolution is that the world is still evolving. Where the world itself is evolving toward perfection. Human beings are still evolving. We have massive, massive potential inside of us. And it hasn't been unleashed yet. The phraseology of the sages is that our, and the Torah itself talks about this directly, says that our hearts are going to be circumcised. That means that there's a blockage on top of our hearts that's going to be removed. What is that talking about? It's talking about we're going to be, our potentials, our souls are going to be unleashed in the most awesome way. So we have to understand that the world itself is still evolving, that human beings are still evolving. It's a very crucial concept if you want to understand the Torah point of view of the world and to understand our own reality. So, so getting back to Rabbi Wolfson's thought, he says that the gematria for the for Chodesh Kislev, for this, these Hebrew words, which means the month of Kislev, which contains Hanukkah, and we're going to talk about Hanukkah soon, correlates with this phrase, they're both equal 434, Yeah, that means in the future, Hashem Echad, God will be one, and His name will be one. So again, He's one now, but the revelation of that oneness awaits. And that's what we're in the process of doing. When we do Torah and we do mitzvahs, that's what we're doing. We're revealing the oneness of God. You know, I heard from Rabbi Manus Friedman, a, a, a very fundamental concept. He said, you know, people think, when I do a mitzvah, I make something holy. Like, for instance, I'm holding an apple, say. And I say, Brocha ta Hashem, Elokeinu Melcholam, I make a brocha. Now I've sanctified the moment. I've made it holy. He says, that's not what it is. That's not what it is. What do you mean, you made it holy? Let's go a few steps back. God fills the entire world. God's essence spreads out and saturates all of existence. There's already Kedusha and holiness contained within everything. Right? That doesn't mean that everything's permitted, by the way. You know, that's one of the reasons that I heard that the Vilna Gon excommunicated the Hasidim. Because he was afraid that in their emphatic, ecstatic embrace of God's holiness saturating everything, that at a certain point, they would take us go one step further and declare the impure pure. 
And the thing is, is that there are boundaries, there are parameters that have to be respected. Even as we acknowledge that God permeates all of existence, nonetheless, there are certain things that we can do and that we can't do. And we have to understand those boundaries. Otherwise, we're kidding ourselves. You know, and it's interesting because, you know, have you ever heard the phrase that you can be too smart for your own good? So, in the Gemara, they talk about Rabbi Meir. And that Rabbi Meir's uh, halachic opinions, his, 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 his like, when he would decide on a matter, whether something was pure or impure, they didn't accept his opinion. And the reason was, because he was so beyond, off the charts, brilliant and holy, that he had the capacity to find the purity within the impurity, and to declare the impure pure. And the sages were like, you know what? No, <laughs> no, we're not. No, it's too far. It's too far. Because so we have to be careful with ourselves. We have to respect the fact that there are boundaries. That's what it is. Anyway, so Hanukkah. Hanukkah is awesome. And to build to Hanukkah and to properly appreciate what's going on with Hanukkah and when we light the menorah and what's going on. Well, wait a second. I'm sorry. Let me just finish the, the thought from Rabbi Friedman. Which is that many people think when they'll say a blessing over the apple, say, they're taking something mundane and they're making it holy. But if God already fills the entire world... What you're doing when you make a blessing on the apple is you're revealing the holiness in the apple. In other words, it's like the window's fogged and you're taking like a cloth and you're wiping it away and you're revealing that God is there. You're not implanting godliness. You're revealing godliness. Because God already permeates the entire universe. You follow? There's a very fundamental difference. Okay. So now, let's take a bunch of steps back. God is one. But how does that oneness manifest itself in the universe? So we have to make a fundamental distinction between the heavens and the earth. In the heavens, God's oneness is openly revealed before all the angels, right? This is why angels don't have free choice. Because God is so openly revealed that they can't go against His will. It's like, there He is. How can you say no? It's so obvious. It's right there. This is called Yehuda Elah. This is called the unity, the upper unity. Right? Meaning, the revelation of God's oneness in the heavens. It's open and it's clear. But you also have something called Yehuda Tata, which is the oneness of God as it exists below. Now that's not so simple. Because here, there are many things trying to cover over God's oneness. And I think that there's something that, that all of us have to understand very, very, very clearly. 
And I think it's a very fundamental point. And I, I really ask you to, to, to really endeavor to review this in your mind and to fully understand this. Because I think that this is a breakthrough idea in terms of really living a true life. And that's the following. There is tremendous structure to the universe. We exist within tremendous, precise structure. And all you have to do is to understand that there are trillions of celestial galaxies and stars and planets and all sorts of things. And they all have incredibly precise orbits. And that exists above us. And now if you want to go to the opposite extreme, to the atomic level and to the subatomic level, you understand that the elements are incredibly precise. The atoms and the nucleus and the, and the electrons and all of these things are incredibly precise. And if you alter them a slight iota, you make a completely different substance. Everything is incredibly precise. If you think of DNA... DNA is incredibly precise. You wouldn't think to throw in an extra Y chromosome or an extra... It would mutate a human being dramatically. The slightest, slightest, slightest change. So from this we see, and there are zillions of examples of this, we live in a world of incredible precision. Except... Human beings and human interaction is incredibly mysterious. But you have to understand that human beings and human interactions, we don't understand each other. Why did he say that? Why did she say that? Why did he do that? Why did she do that? It makes no sense. I don't understand. But human interactions are the smallest subset of the universe. Do you understand that? That in terms of the enormity of what's going on in the universe, interpersonal relationships are the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest grain of salt in terms of what's actually going on in the universe. But what do we do? And here's the mistake that we make. We take, since since we're human beings and we're involved in these human interactions, right? So these... You know, while if you take ten steps back and you see it is truly the smallest, smallest subset of everything, well, that's true, because that's what we're involved in 24-7, we then experience that as reality, and we project that random, mysterious unknowableness onto the universe. And we say, nothing is precise. Nothing can be understood. You see, it's a lie. It's It's a total falsehood. It's a total falsehood. The world is incredibly precise. I'll tell you, and this is, I mean, just a P.S. on top of a P.S. on top of a P.S. But it's just a story that I want to share with you that happened to me this this past week. A friend of mine asked me to come to his house to help him put up mezuzahs in his house. So... So, the first step, you know, we didn't put up the mezuzahs yet, but the first step is figuring out which doorposts they go on. And depending on the house, it's, it's often not so simple. Because, just, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of question marks. Anyway, so we're going through the house and we're doing the best we can, and we've got, uh, we've got post-its 
and we're putting them up where they should go when, when eventually we get the mezuzahs, and we're going through and debating various things, but at the end, we got it. And we sat down, and we talked a little bit, and he's in a large apartment building, but the place was empty. When we walked in, the lobby was empty, the hallways were empty, the place was empty. This was on a Sunday around, just so it had gotten nighttime. So after we, we did the thing with the mezuzahs, a few, I, I, toward the end, he turns to me as we're putting this stuff up, and he says to me, Ghostbusters. Right? Okay, that's what he said. So then, a few minutes later, I get into the elevator, the elevator stops, and in walks the director of the movie Ghostbusters. I thought, it, first of all, how do I even know that that guy is the director? Of, it's Ivan Reitman, right? So, I, and I'm thinking, is this really Ivan Reitman? Like, I, I can't... And so, so we get down to the bottom, and we're in the lobby, and again, the, the lobby's empty. The, the place is empty. And he's waiting for his car, and he has his back to me, and he's standing about five feet in front of me. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm sure that's what who that guy is, but I've got to confirm it. I've got to confirm it, so I don't think it's just in my head. So, in spite of myself, I said, Mr. Reitman? And he turned around and said, yes. And then I realized I have to say something now. <laughs> so I said, I just want you to know I'm a big fan. And then I introduced him to my son, and then as I got into my car, I said, just thank you for all the great hours. And he said, that's so nice of you to say. You know, he was so happy. And then I called up my friend and I said, did you, am I losing my mind or did you just say Ghostbusters? He said, yeah, I said it. I said, why did you say it? He said, because you know we're getting rid of the negative energy by putting up the mezuzahs. I said, well, you know, and then I told him what I just told you and he was blown away. He was like, I said, you're unleashing something, you know, something's being unleashed, you know. So, by the way, I shared it with you before, but it's important to know that when coincidences happen to you, that's, that's a sign that you should pray. That's, that's what that means. And just to work through the, the math of that just very quickly. Why? Because I heard one time someone say, it wasn't a Torah source, but it makes a lot of sense, that when a coincidence happens to you, that's God waving hello to you. And I like that, but I thought, well, but it's more than that, because God is always running the world. You know, God, so to speak, is always waving hello with, that, with all the events. So, but a coincidence is something more. So, so what is the coincidence? So there's a, a Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, a teaching that says the following, that beloved are human beings because they're created in God's image. But it's a sign of an even greater love that it's revealed to us, that we're informed that we're created in God's image. And then it says, Beloved is Israel, because God chose us to be His people. And then it says it's indicative of an even greater love, that God informs us that we're His people. And it quotes a passage from the, from the Torah. So in other words... It's one thing, yes, that God is constantly running the world, that's true. But it's a higher level when, so to speak, God goes out of His way to inform you that He's running the world. 
and that He's running your personal life in the most minute, exact, wonderful form. So if that's the case, if God is, so to speak, going out of His way to inform you of His closeness, that means this is called an Esratzon, a propitious time, a time when the gates of prayer, the gates of closeness are open. So if God is indicating to you that the gates are open, what do you do? You've got to pray. You've got to take advantage of that. And again, everyone should know, when you pray, there's certain categories that you've got to hit. You've got to pray for Mashiach, for the fixing of the world. You've got to pray that people should find their, their marriage partners. You've got to pray that people who need money should get a livelihood. You've got to pray that people who are sick should get well. And you've got to pray that people who need children are blessed with children. And I think I mentioned that people who need health. If I didn't, people who need health should get health. So money, children, marriage partners, kids, health, and Mashiach. Got to hit all those categories. And by the way, you should go through life adding people to those categories. As you meet, as you meet people, you go, oh, that person needs X. So you put them in that category. And if you can get their name and their Hebrew name with their mother or whatever it is, then you, 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 you make your list so that when these moments happen, that you go through it and you take advantage of these moments of closeness and openness. Very important that everyone has that, that list and these categories. Very, very important. Okay. So we're still getting to Hanukkah. So what we've established, I hope, is this notion of God's oneness in the world, but we've got the open revelation of this oneness above, and below, it's more concealed. It's concealed because human interpersonal relations are very confusing. But that's not the ultimate reality. That's a small subset of the reality, and we can't allow us ourselves to have that warp our overview under, or, or, or overall understanding of, of the actual reality. So God is one below as well, even if our interpersonal relationships are often confusing. Now I want to say something else, which is also very, very important. People can say things that are not true. I'm making it very simple. But this is a very, very powerful Teaching, and you have to listen very carefully. Right now, we're in this room here. I can say that right now, I'm not talking metaphorically. Right now, I'm talking in terms of actual reality, okay? I can say, right now, we're on a boat. I can say, right now, we're in a Chinese restaurant. I can say, right now, we're on Mars. I can say all of these things, none of them are true. Just because someone says something doesn't mean that it's true. People can say falsehood all the time and do say falsehood, either intentionally or unintentionally, all of the time. Because they assert it and because they believe it doesn't make it true. There is an ultimate truth. There is an actual reality. And it's... So, so one shouldn't feel... As though lies threaten the truth. Lies veil the truth, but they don't threaten the truth. 
the truth remains. In other words, someone can tell you something very confusing, and now you're confused. What is the truth? But the truth didn't go away. The truth remains. Not only that, but because someone has looked for the truth doesn't, and not found the truth, doesn't mean that the truth isn't there. For instance, I can say, there's no such thing as good Chinese food. And how do I know? Because I've gone to seven Chinese restaurants and haven't enjoyed any of them. Well, I happen to know there is such a good thing as such a thing as good Chinese food. And if you didn't go to one of those restaurants, that just means that you haven't found it yet. Yeah. Yeah, right now I'm not talking about doubt so much. Right now I'm talking about just the presence of truth. That truth exists. You see, in an effort... You see, the the, the Medrash talks about this, and this is a very, again, a very central teaching about trying to understand the nature of reality. It says that there was a competition. Basically, all these different qualities were voting whether God should create the world or not. And, and basically it came down to peace and truth. Okay? And what happened was, peace got the final vote, and truth was thrown down to the ground. Meaning to say that a lot of times, and we see this especially in the modern world, especially in democracies and things like this, in an effort to maintain peace, People are willing to sacrifice truth. You see, what we need to evolve toward as a human society is a place where there's truth and peace. But in contemporary civilization, people are willing to sacrifice truth in order to have peace. And they doubt that you can have the two together. Because... You've got people like the fundamentalists who are so inflamed with their incorrect understanding of truth that they're willing to kill everyone else in order to have their truth. So they obliterate peace. So we're constantly being reminded that, that if you want truth, it's at the price of peace. You see? So that's why especially westernized democracies, are terrified of truth. Because they think once you have truth, you lose peace. And peace is such a prize. And by the way, peace really is a prize. It's a, it's a huge prize in Torah as well. And in fact, you have um, a very amazing Gomorrah that says that in the time of, I believe it was Ahav, who was a, a wicked king of Israel and was big into, um, or maybe it was Menashe, I'm not sure which one, big into Avodah Zorah, 
idol worship and, you know, really, really was a, a terrible influence on, on, on the Jewish people uh, during his reign. But, believe it or not, during his reign, the Jewish people prospered. And they, they, they were wealthy during his reign. And so the sages of the Gomorrah, the Talmud, asked this question, how can it be this king was such a bum, you know, how can it be that the Jewish people prospered during his reign? And the rabbis answered, because during his reign they had peace among each other. So you see that the power of peace and the power of unity is something very, very great. And this is what we have to strive for. We have to strive to be able to live in truth and to live in peace. And that's one of the great balancing acts that really requires such a level of sophistication in terms of interpersonal dealings. And it's not going to happen until we're able to really bring out and to teach people the beauty of the Torah. Because peace can't be imposed on a person. That's what they're always that's why all these peace treaties in the Middle East are, are always failing. You can't impose peace. Peace has to blossom. Peace has to come from the people who are the parties to the conflict. They have to want to get along with each other. You know, Reb Shlomo once said that we talk about Shalom Bias. Shalom Bias means peace in the home. It's a very, very great, extremely great thing to, to have. Massively great. Peace in the home. It says the Shekhinah dwells in a home where there's peace. That's like the revealed presence of Hashem. It's, it's, an, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, very, it's very important. So, Reb Shlomo said that most people in the world think that, what's Shalom bias, what's peace in the home? I'm not yelling at you and you're not yelling at me. He says, that's not peace. That's a ceasefire. <laughs> very different. A ceasefire is not peace. Peace means that there's actually a unity that's present. That's what peace is. Uh, very, the world, at best, is on the level of a ceasefire. But that's not, that's not peace. So again, in terms of trying to understand the fact that there's only the oneness of God, and that the unity of God above is openly revealed, and the unity of God below, and it's all one, we're only talking about one God right now, is clouded over. Now why is it clouded over? Just to review. Because people make false assertions. But that doesn't... That doesn't stop what's true from being true. It's just confusing when people say, you know, I'm a monkey. I'm not a monkey. <laughs> you know, you can say I'm a monkey, but I'm not a monkey. I'm sorry. I've got a piece of God inside of me. That makes me something more elevated. A monkey is a monkey, and a man is a man. And by the way, once you posit the infinity of God, once you posit that there's a God who's all-powerful. So, let me ask you something. God made birds, and God made lizards, and God made human beings. Did He have to make a lizard in order to make a human being? Couldn't He have made a lizard and a human being, and a bird, and a monkey, all at the same time? Is anything hard for Him? 
If you already posit, if you begin with the starting point of an all-powerful God, God doesn't have to have done anything in order to do anything. Now, did He choose to do it this way? Maybe He chose to do it this way. But does He have to have done it that way? No, of course not. But again, the bigger, the bigger point in terms of understanding evolution is not, how did I become me? It's, why am I here? And what am I heading toward? What is the world heading toward? These are the real questions. The other questions are just red herrings. You know, let's say ultimately you, you, you get the answer. Okay, so I figured out how I am, who I am. But guess what? It's Tuesday and my rent is due on Thursday. <laughs> so where does it help me? Or should I marry this one or should I go to that place? What does it help me if I understanding, you know, how I came to be who I am? I need to know why I'm here and what I need to accomplish with my life. So now, now we have the idea which is the end game of human history. The open revelation of the oneness of God below. This is what we're doing. This is what, we, this is what we're doing when we're doing mitzvahs. We're revealing the oneness of God below. And that it's all God. Okay. Now comes Hanukkah. Yeah. Part of the shadows of doing mitzvah, mitzvot, the, the divine pathways that we work on keep us from bumping into each other, which you mentioned yeah. yesterday. Can you yeah. share? Yeah. That so nice. Yeah. So, so, you see, as we were saying, the universe itself is incredibly precise. And we talk about the orbital patterns of all the celestial bodies. They're so precise. I mean, I read, I, you'd have to confirm this for yourself, but just the fact that someone wrote it in itself is, is amazing to me. That there are more heavenly bodies than there are grains of sand in this world. So that just gives you an idea, and they're giant. I mean, each one of these things, Earth is small. These things are giant. And there are more of those than grains of sand in the world? That means there's trillions and trillions and trillions of these massive things. So can I ask you a very simple question? Why don't they bump into each other? And once they start bumping into each other, that's the end of the universe. That's the end of the universe. How could it be that you've got basically the equivalent of, you know, like in those, um, in the action films, when you've got an entire truck, and it's a truckload of nitroglycerin, right? And it's driving over the roads that are filled with potholes, and people are firing machine guns at the truck, and it's like, oh, you know, like, it's going to blow. Like, you've got basically each one of these planets, or whatever it is, are massive truckloads of nitroglycerin. And if their orbits get thrown off just the smallest bit, they go 
propelling into another planet, and then that shifts the whole gravitational fields, and then they'll slam into another one, and that creates an even bigger gravitational field, and then all of a sudden, the entire universe falls down in a domino pattern, and everything explodes and disappears. And yet you don't see that. You see trillions and trillions of massive entities doing the most intricately choreographed dance and never making a misstep. And then, if they do make a misstep, and there is something like a black hole or whatever it is, even that's built into the plan and doesn't throw off the entire structure. Which is, in itself, wondrous. Why doesn't it? And now it goes all the way down, as we said, to the DNA level, how exact every single person is, right? And all the way down to the subatomic level. And so human beings also have a path. You see, but the difference is, human beings have the ability to deny that they have a path. God gives us free choice to say, oh, it doesn't apply to me. Oh, Mazel tov. It applies to everything in the entire universe against, except you. You must be one very special guy. In fact, you must be God. I'd love to meet you, God. What? You're an accountant? You work in that building? God, can we have lunch one day together? I mean, it's phenomenal arrogance. Phenomenal arrogance that someone should think that this doesn't apply to them. That this level of precision somehow excludes them. But that's just it. We have the free choice. God gives us free choice to deny that it applies to us. So then what is, what are the mitzvahs then? What are the halachas? Remember, halacha means, it's translated as Jewish law, but that's a very thick-headed, you know, translation. Halacha comes from the word holeich, which means to go, it means to flow. It means the way. It's a very kind of Eastern, really, kind of idea, if you, if you think about it. That's, that's, it has that flavor to it. Halacha, the way, the path, as it applies to us, that's our orbital pattern. That's our flow. And when we keep it, it, makes, it, it, it guarantees that I don't bump into your wife, and I don't bump into your money, and I don't bump into your covet, your honor. Right? And it keeps us all in a beautiful, harmonious pattern. And that's the idea of it. And when we do that, we then are able to clarify all the different competing energies that are in the world. You see, we have a teaching in Pirkei Avos that the voice from Mount Sinai is still going out from Mount Sinai. So why can't we hear it? So I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of Rebbe Nachman that anger makes the loudest noise in the universe. All the anger in the world is drowning it all out. And then if you add greed and if you add lust and if you add violence and you add murder and you add all these things, there's so many competing energies in the world and it's drowning out all the truth. So what's called upon us? 
We're also these phenomenal entities. You think a planet is great? You know what a human being is? A human being is, is, is more massive, more incredible than a planet. A, univ- a, a human being is likened into an entire world. We impact the entire universe. So when we do the dance of halacha, when we choreograph our actions, we bring harmony to the entire universe and we clarify all of these energies that are drowning out the revelation of God's oneness. And then when we do that, it will be very clear that God who is one above is also one below and that oneness is the same oneness. That there is only God. That there is only God. Now, how do you see this in Hanukkah? So, in, there are different ways to light the menorah. Today, in today's time, it's very popular to light your menorah inside your house on a table facing a window. But there's another way to light the menorah, which in a lot of ways is, I mean, it's, it's kind of a deeper way, but, you know, whatever it is, let, let's, just, let's just learn this way. The way you light the menorah is you light it in your doorpost, okay? Opposite the mezuzah. So the mezuzah is on the upper right-hand side, and you put the menorah on the lower left-hand side. Not on the floor, but not so high up either. You see, we have a concept, it's a spiritual concept, which is that the Shekhinah doesn't descend below ten tefachim in this world. A tefach is a hand's breadth. So below ten hand's breaths, the Shekhinah, God's revealed presence, doesn't descend. Okay, we'll just have to accept that at face value. We can get into the depth of that another time. So the idea is that you take the light of the menorah and you put it below ten hands breaths in that area where the Shekhinah doesn't descend to. And now you have this amazing balance of energies. And we're going to go into it a little bit further and and hear what Rabbi Wolfson says on this. An amazing gematria too. So basically, you have to picture this in your mind. You have on the right side, above, the mezuzah. Now what does that represent? The mezuzah contains the word Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. Okay? It's the open declaration of the oneness of God. And it's above because in the spiritual worlds, it's openly revealed. Okay. Now below, on the other side, below ten hand's breaths, right, you have the menorah. So that signifies this world, where God is still one, that same oneness is still the oneness that's here, but it's not openly revealed. So what do we do? We put the menorah there and we light up that darkness. Okay? Now listen to this, something amazing. Rabbi Wolfson brings from the Zohar, and that stands for, and that stands for the fact that God is one here below too. Now listen to this. The Zohar says that the words 
Baruch Shem Kavod Malchuso Le'elam Ba'ed. Right? Which means, the kingship of God is forever, has 24 letters. Shmaya and correlates with the first 24 days of Kislev. Remember, the 25th of Kislev of this month with Hanukkah is the day that Hanukkah starts. Now, are you ready for this? Shema Yisrael Hashem Alokeinu Hashem Echad has 25 letters. That correlates with Hanukkah itself. So what are we doing? Remember, we said on the upper right side of the door, we have the mezuzah, which contains the Shema, which is the open declaration of godliness. And what's our goal? To reveal that oneness of God here below. So on the other side of the door, below ten hands breaths, where the Shekhinah isn't revealed, we put the menorah on Hanukkah, which is the 25th of Kislev, which correlates with the 25 letters of Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, signifying the oneness of God below. And we light it up below ten hands breaths, where that oneness isn't openly apparent, meaning in the real rough and tumble of this physical world, and we reveal the oneness of God below. Now listen to this. Rabbi Wolfson brings something amazing, an amazing gematria, that these words, Hashem Echad, Ushmo Echad, this is how we started, Hashem is one, and His name is one, is the same gematria as the words Mezuzah, Ner Hanukkah. It's the same numerical equivalent as the words mezuzah, which is the open revelation of godliness above, and near Hanukkah, the light of the menorah, below. And that's the end game. When we achieve that realization of that God is one and His name is one, which is the destiny of the universe, which is what we're all heading toward. Now listen to this. Something amazing. Something really Phenomenal. Rivka in the Torah, that's Rebecca in English, Rivka in the Torah represents the soul of Hanukkah. Why? Because Rivka lives in the house of Lovin. Now, Lovin is like, doesn't get a lot of press, but he's the worst. He's the worst. And now you want to hear how bad he is? The Zohar, Rabbi Wilson brings, the Zohar says he's the same as the Nachash, the snake from the Garden of Eden, and Bilam, who tried to wipe out the Jewish people. By the way, Levin also tried to wipe out the Jewish people at its inception. We say that in the Haggadah. Tried to get rid of Yaakov and the, and the, and the tribes. So, he tried to cut us off right at the very beginning. So you, I mean, in terms of a spiritual family tree, or soul tree, however you want to say it, the snake to Lovin to Bilam, that's pretty potent. So, Rivka, who represents the truth of the oneness of God below, lives in the home of Lovin. And so what's Eliezer doing when he wants to make this match? 
He's going right into the heart of darkness to extract the truth. That's the light of Hanukkah. Because what did we say? We light the menorah opposite the mezuzah, below ten hands breaths, right in the darkest place. So she is the light of Hanukkah. And what did we say also? That the menorah, that Shema Yisrael, Shema Lekenu, Shema Chad is 25 letters, which correlates with the 25th day of Kislev, which is Hanukkah. Right? Listen to this. Rabbi Wolfson brings something amazing. The name Rivka, if you spell out each letter, so if you spell out the Resh of Rivka, that's the first letter of her name. So you don't just count it, Resh normally is 200. You don't just count it as 200, you spell out the whole letter. So that's Resh Yud Shin. Okay? Then you go on to the next letter and you spell out that letter. That's a form of gematria. You're not just doing the letters, but you're doing the complete spelling of all the letters. You ready for this? We just said Rivka represents the light of Hanukkah, which is the oneness of God in the darkness. Right? If you spell out each letter of Rivka, it comes out to 1,118, which is the gematria of Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. The oneness of God. No, that's just... I'm sorry? That's the full gematria or the straight gematria? That's just the straight gematria of Shema Yisrael. Right? So... So, she, so, so Eliezer has to bring out, bring out Rivka. Now, the Hassan and Kala, bride and groom, husband and wife, represent, spiritually speaking, the upper revealed oneness and the lower oneness. In other words, where it's more, hasn't been fully revealed yet. They represent heaven and earth. And this is why when Abraham gives Eliezer his orders to go and to get a wife for Isaac, for Yitzchak, he says, swear by the God of heaven and earth. That's what it says in the Torah. Because by getting husband and wife together, you're revealing the oneness of heaven and earth. So that's his mission. Now, Lovin, you think Lovin is okay with this? Lovin is very much not okay with this. First he's on board, then he's not on board. Now listen to this. Look how deep the Torah is. You can read it, and you can read it on the level of a story, and it's, that's good for one level. But if you want to be, like, real, you've got to understand that there's so much going on in the Torah, it's ridiculous. Okay? I'm going to read this to you, and then I'm going to read it to you the way Rabbi Wolfson understands it, okay? When Lovin greets Eliezer, this is what he says to him. Especially since, by the way, keep in mind that Eliezer had given Rivka tremendous gifts of gold and everything like that, which stand for the entire Torah, and you can look up the, 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 the Rashis there. Like, he gave her two gold bracelets, which symbolizes the two tablets and they weighed 10 uh, shkalim, I think, which correlates with the Ten Commandments. And it's the whole, 
basically the whole Torah he's giving her. Anyway, that aside, the point is, is that Levin saw gold. That's the point. And so, so Levin is into Eliezer because he figures this, this is a guy with some serious cash. And he says, upon greeting him, he says, Come, O blessed of Hashem. Remember, this is the snake talking. Okay? He says, Come, O blessed of Hashem. Why should you stand outside when I have cleared the house? Right? So, meaning, don't be outside. Be inside. It sounds like wonderful hospitality on the superficial level. But listen to how Rabbi Wolfson reads it. He says that the forces of darkness which Lovin represents. You see, originally, where did we light the Hanukkah menorah? And in Israel today, they still do this. But, but because of the harsh exile that the Jewish people have experienced and all of the persecution, it aroused the ire of the other nations for us to light the menorah in public. And so we light it in a private space in our homes. Okay? That's a concession that we've made to the exile. Okay? So, so, but ideally, what's the point is that we want to light up the entire world. We want to show that God exists that God's oneness exists everywhere, including in this dimension of reality. We want to light it up outside. So, so, so now let's revisit Lovin's words. He says, Why should you stand outside? What are you doing outside? What are you doing lighting up the, the, the darkness of the outside? I've cleared a space for you inside. You want to be holy? Be holy behind closed doors. Not in public. The outside belongs to me, says Lovin. Not to you. Pretty amazing, right? You want to be holy? Do it behind closed doors. Not in a public space. So, so now, so, so happy Hanukkah. <laughs> Have a good week. <laughs>